A reading from the Gospel of John. John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there is something about Jesus Christ, the person Jesus Christ, that has always attracted people that will always attract people and still attracts people today. I mean, even uh, people that don't recognize or acknowledge his divinity uh, find him compelling, Jesus of Nazareth. Thomas Jefferson uh, famously spent his old age really fixated on Jesus, and he uh, so much so that, um, you know, he did his own Bible excising the supernatural parts, but really focusing on the moral teachings of Jesus. He didn't tell anybody he was doing that um, while he was uh, an old man. It was discovered afterwards. Um, right before Christmas, New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof interviewed Tim Keller, the author and pastor in New York City. And he just said, well, Tim, I'm skeptical of the virgin birth and the resurrection and the miracles, but he says, quote, I deeply admire Jesus and his message. And I would say that um, that's very safe to say that, that many people in the modern world, maybe you, uh, even fall into that category. Um, there's something about Jesus Christ, is what I'm saying, that still attracts people. And his new book called The Great Good Thing the best-selling mystery writer Andrew Clavin chronicles his experience of being attracted to Jesus and meeting him. His subtitle is, quote, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And he was baptized 10 years ago when he was 49, and he had prided himself on his urbane skepticism and his freedom of thought and his worldly success. Yet, looking back, he recognizes that he was attracted uh, to Jesus, even as a teenager, he knew he wanted to be a writer, so he started reading all of the classics. He says, by the time I was 15 or so, I'd begun to understand that Christianity was central to everything I'd been reading. I was only a boy, I didn't understand much, but I began to understand that at the heart of all Western mythology, 
um, all Western civilization, all Western writing, all Western thought, every Western ideal, there stood a single book, the Bible, and there stood a single man, Jesus of Nazareth. So in the gospel that Asher just read this evening, which takes place after the virgin birth, but before any miracle happens, uh, and of course before the resurrection happens, two Jewish men find themselves attracted to Jesus Christ. So this sermon will follow the exchange that he just read between these two men and Jesus, and I think it's an exchange which is uh, something that still happens, uh, even could happen tonight. So starting off with John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by and says, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that nobody's probably ever said that to you, right? I mean, that's a quite a thing to say about somebody, so it obviously gets the attention of his two disciples. And Andrew and the other one who's unnamed, which might be John, who wrote the gospel, um, follow Jesus. They start following him right behind him, and Jesus turns around and asks them a penetrating question, which is still a penetrating question. He says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And it's a good question, isn't it? Because it can be answered on so many levels, from the sort of mundane to the very profound. What are you looking for? You know, sometimes we don't know what we're looking for, but we know that we're looking for something. Uh, Sometimes the thing that we're looking for isn't really the thing that we're looking for. Sometimes we know what we're looking for, we think, But in the words of you two from 30 years ago, we still haven't found what we're looking for. But it's a universal question, and Jesus asked it to these two men. And again, whether it's answered, I'm looking for, you know, you're looking for your next meal, you're looking for a Packers win, or you're looking for a hot date, or you're looking for inner peace, or you're looking for world peace, you're looking for your true self, whomever that may be or you're looking for the salvation of your own soul, you are, in fact, looking for something. What are you looking for? So the guys in the story, um, in the gospel, they don't answer Jesus' question with an answer. They answer back with a question. And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? What are you looking for? Rabbi, where are you staying? It's an odd thing to say, odd response to what are you looking for. But maybe it isn't, because let's dive into that a little more deeply. What's behind the seeker's question? There is something, again, about Jesus that makes John's disciples want to go and be in his presence, to be with him. They want to stay at his house. They want to get to know him. They want to talk to him. They want to be in relationship with him. What they are looking for is somehow bound up in knowing Jesus Christ. And I believe this is still universally true, that what you and I are looking for ultimately is in some way bound up with knowing God through Jesus Christ. I mean, we were all created by God. 
We were alienated from God and from one another by our sin and self-interest. And yet, that doesn't stop the inner desire that we have to be in a harmonious relationship with God and with all of his creation. So God, seeing we were stuck in that sin, comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who reveals himself as the friend of sinners. That's who he is, i.e. the friend of you and me, because we're sinners. And so in response to this inner longing for what we're looking for, he says to us what he says to the two men who ask him where he's staying, quite um, nonchalantly, come and see, come and see where I'm staying. And then the text simply says they came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. So who knows what happened during that time, but obviously they experienced grace, they experienced love, they experienced um, something that made them want to stay with Jesus Christ. Now, the part of the story that has been on my mind and has captivated me since I've been thinking about this all week is the fact that the time of day is recorded in the Scripture. I don't know if you heard Asher say that, but it says it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and I don't think anything is in there by accident. So what on earth is happening at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Why is that in the story? So this, stay with me. It gets a little weird here, but um, just just stay with me. So to me, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's a kind of no man's land. Uh, When Christy and I traveled abroad, we always felt particularly homesick about four o'clock in the afternoon. Four o'clock is a lonely time. It's not a time for a meal with others. It's too late for a nap. It's too early for a glass of wine, one hopes. It's too late to start something fresh. It's too early to call it a day. And in the winter, the light wanes at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But in the summer, the heat still oppresses at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the Bible says. Why? Well, author William Styron, uh, one of my favorites, recounts his intense struggle with depression in his memoir, A Darkness Visible. And each afternoon around 4 he would descend into a kind of crippling despair. He says, it was October, and one of the unforgettable features of this stage of my disorder was the way in which my own farmhouse, my beloved home for 30 years, took on for me at that point when my spirits regularly sank to their nadir, an almost palpable quality of ominousness, the fading evening light, akin to that famous slant of light of Emily Dickinson's which spoke to her of death, of chill extinction, had none of its familiar autumnal loveliness, but ensnared me in a suffocating gloom. I wondered how this friendly place, his farmhouse, could almost perceptibly seem so hostile and 
forbidden, forbidding. Four o'clock in the afternoon, a.k.a. your place of struggle. That's why it's in there. You know, it's no wonder that the English have tea at four o'clock in the afternoon. If you've ever had a proper English tea, you know, the custom arose in the mid-1800s when the English Duchess Anna got hungry in between the one o'clock meal and the eight o'clock dinner. So traditional afternoon tea, you know, it's fantastic. It consists of these dainty sandwiches, but also scones and cakes and pastries served with clotted cream and preserves and tea, which is grown in India. It's poured from these silver teapots into delicate bone china cups, and people come and gather and have tea together. Why? To ward off perhaps the physical hunger, but maybe on a deeper level, to ward off the existential hunger that is four o'clock in the afternoon. And then maybe you don't buy any of this, and you love four o'clock in the afternoon. Like you watch Judge Judy or something. I don't know what you do at four o'clock in the afternoon. No, you're so excited to come to church, you, but four o'clock from Monday to Saturday. But what I know about you is what I know about me, is that there's some o'clock, more than just one o'clock in your day, in your week, in your life, in which you cry out for meaning, for love, for relationship, and ultimately for Jesus Christ. So the two men in the story, back to them, they apparently find what they're looking for. Um, they, They more precisely find who it is that they're looking for. Andrew finds his brother, Peter, and says, we have found the Messiah. So what happens? The two seekers just um, leave John the Baptist high and dry. They defect from John, and they become disciples of Jesus Christ. Why does this happen? Well, just it happens because of this. So John the Baptist represents the accusing finger-pointing of what we should be, i.e. the law. And the law never satisfies our longing. Only the grace of God can, which Jesus Christ exhibits and embodies. John specializes in pointing out our sins. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins unto himself. So he is the one we're looking for precisely because we are all in need not of accusation, but of absolution. So the man, as Clavin said, at the center of all of it all, well, he still stands before you. That's what we believe by faith, that he's here now, that he is broken in the bread, that he's poured out in the wine, that he is in the absolving love of his grace. And we believe that he will be with you tomorrow at four o'clock in the afternoon or wherever that place is for your life. And he's in that place, that hostile and forbidding place in your life, with his arms of compassion open wide. 1,600 years after this happened, after the virgin birth, after the resurrection, There was a philosopher and a mathematician who, after years of anguished looking, came to Jesus and saw. 
talking about Blaise Pascal. And he was, uh, had, a, had, a, had a powerful conversion. And at the moment of his conversion, he wrote a note to himself, and he sewed it into the lining of his coat in secret, but it was found after his death and read. And here is what the note said. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, certitude, heartfelt joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy. Amen.